Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know what you Hello, everyone, and good evening. Welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Blog Talk Radio Show. NASCA stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. And my name is Kim Lakin, and I'm your host for this evening. And my beautiful co-host this evening is Miss Annie. So if you would like to call in and be a part of the panel, she will meet you on the back line and let you into the studio. And or and or if you just want to listen, you're welcome to do that as well. So guests are welcome to call in on the number six four six five nine five two one. One eight, and I said, Miss Annie, I'll meet you on the back line there. I'm excited to introduce our our special guest this evening. And but first, we need to get to a little business. So, um, at NASCA, we have a single purpose, and that is to address issues that are related to childhood abuse and trauma, especially and including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with two goals. One, by educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, also known as CSA, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths and providing survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And you can get a lot of this information on nasca.org. And you can also go back and listen to any of the past scans that we've had. And um, this evening we are on scan number 3153. So you're able to, within a half an hour of the show, Go back and um, pick this up and listen to it if you would like to. So, um, again, if you would like to be a part of the panel, please call in to the guest line, which is 646-595-2118. And my co-host will meet you on the back line and and let you in. So, um, tonight's special guest is Paul Abramson. 
from Glendale, California. He was born into a wealthy, elite family of extreme narcissists. His mother was severely emotionally disturbed, and his father was a psychopath. He says, they got away with their crimes because they were rich and powerful in the corrupt Chicago, Illinois area. He goes on, my mother would abandon us when we were toddlers. Heaven is three sisters. His father was a soulless brute in money and thought of children as property and nothing more. Oh, that makes me sad. I'm sorry. You went through all that, Paul. Social workers had to be called out to the house numerous times. Paul rebelled and at five was thrown into a mental hospital without any diagnosis. It was run as if it was a concentration camp, Paul says. He was beaten, tortured, and sexually molested by staff and parents, patients for over three years. When he was home from 9 to 12, similarity, similarly beaten and sexually molested by his father, his mom hit him on a regular basis. Again, he rebelled and was sent away to another mental hospital where, again, for three years, he was physically tortured and sexually abused by patients and staff. He was liberated at 17 years of age. He got some student loans and left for college to California and never looked back. He eventually sought treatment at the university for all the traumas that he had suffered. Eventually, his doctor determined there was absolutely no reason Paul had been committed to either mental hospital and no psychiatric diagnosis. He scheduled, or he sued his parents for their horrific um, mistreatment but his case was dismissed. His mother died in 2007, and his father stole all of her, mother, her money and cut Paul off from their estate. For the past 10 years, crooked and corrupt attorneys and judges have been dragging Paul through the mud. He needs someone to file an amicus brief for him. So I know that there were several things that we had talked about before the show started. And I know that um, Paul has a lot that he wants to share. And um, I'm just also, you know, reaching out to anybody who, who might have the means to help him as well in any of these areas that he's talking about. And that's, you know, kind of what the NASCA family is about, is, is being able to help each other. So, um, Paul, I am bringing you on now. And welcome to the show. Thank you for being on this evening. And we look forward to hearing your story. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, as we um, go through the evening, I know it seems like a long time, but it'll go really good. Um, what we usually ask is that you start wherever you would like to start in your story. This is going to be your night. It's your story and whatever you want to tell. Um, but kind of start, you know, with it as, as early as you would like. And then maybe before you move into your older years and what you're doing now, we can break and maybe ask a couple questions or if there's something that maybe comes up, I might interrupt you real quick, but I'll try not to do that too much, I promise. <laughs> 
So um, we also have two other people on the panel. We have, of course, my co-host, Annie, is on. And then um, we have our regular caller, Mr. Phillips. So we're happy to have him on again this evening. And um, they may have questions for you eventually, too. So, But we want to give you a little bit of time to, to tell about your story in the beginning and um, just kind of fill us in and where you want to fill us in. So the mic is all yours. And feel free to, you know, if you need to ask questions, you feel free to do that as well, panel. Okay. So, yeah, go ahead. All right, thank you. Um, well, without going through all 60 years of the abuse, because unfortunately it's still still dealing with my perpetrator, who's my father, I just wanted to say um, the purpose of uh, doing your show tonight is to get my story out and hopefully uh, get people to help me. Both, um, I have a movie I'm trying to get made. I have a fabulous screenplay called The Hurting that studios uh, several studios are interested in, but I need to find a A-list director, so that's one of my needs. So someone knows anyone who might know anyone in that area who might be interested in the story, you know, I would appreciate them passing them on to me. And secondly, I'm still in a you know, legal battle with my father because incredibly enough, after he stole my mother's money, he tricked me into settling her estate and then turned around and sued me and it's been dragging me through the the courts in Illinois for the last 10 years. And I guess the purpose when I reached out to your organization to begin with is because I thought the, it might be people who were involved in it who did what's called the amicus curiae briefs, which is a friend of the court brief, which basically they don't represent either party, but they file a brief with the court weighing in on the issues of child abuse because most courts really don't care about it, to be quite honest. And uh, that's the sad part of this whole story. But in any event, uh, I mean, you pretty much in my the bio you read, I mean, there were a few corrections, but I mean, it's pretty, uh, I wrote that. I'm sorry? Yeah, I mean, okay. correct me. I'm, I apologize if I yeah. made any mistakes. That's okay. <laughs> any event, so I mean, most of it was, you know, I wrote that, so it was pretty much, uh, spot on as to what transpired other than uh, the fact that uh, um, my sisters were, were also abused, but they never, uh, they were submissive to every crazy thing that my parents were doing. And uh, and because I acted out in response to all that, I was the one who was turned into the black sheep and the pariah. And, and unfortunately in those days, and probably even today in Chicago, because uh, it's still a very corrupt place, uh, uh, you can just get if you have a lot of money, you can just get rid of your children. So, unfortunately, that's what happened to me. And uh, it's very hard to get justice when people who are that rich and powerful. My father was connected to, you know, Richard Daly, and still, you know, it's a very political city, a lot of corruption. So it's very hard uh, to get justice back there. And so, any event, so I was yes, I was put. Um, I was, we were all abused till five, until I was five, and then I was thrown away in a facility run by, by Dr. Bruno Bettelheim, who was a, a Dachau survivor, and he treated his patients just the way the Nazis treated him. It was a horrific experience, and uh, we were beaten and thrown in isolation, straitjacket, sexually molested, you, you name it, it was done. I don't know how, I, to be honest, I don't know how I survived when I look back on my life, how I survived all this. 
and I ran away from the institution. It was in a very horrible place in the south side of Chicago. I probably could have been killed then when I was eight years old, and then I was able to to return home and only to have my father start sexually molesting me at nine until 14. And then, uh, and then I was uh, obviously I had no one to turn to then. I was even beaten up in O'Hare Airport and the police in front of the police by my father and they didn't do anything then. So, um, yeah, so I didn't really have anyone to turn to other than my grandmother. And she grew up that, you know, father knows best and she couldn't get involved. So, it was a really sad situation for me. And then the second facility they threw me away in in Faribault, Minnesota, was run by another doctor, uh, Robert Wilson, who eventually lost his license after I, I was liberated from that place for <coughs> taking the patients into, to- into town and selling them into prostitution. So this is the kind of you know horrific uh, crap I had to endure, basically. And in the Wilson Center, where I was in with kids who were you know, who were um, severely mentally disturbed. Some, some kids who were in there for murder. I mean, it was incredible. And there were kids in there who were raped. You know, I was molested, beaten. My parents didn't care. And then, you know, I took an attorney to get me out of there. And I was living basically as an emancipated minor when I was 17 in some miserable farming town called Owatonna, Minnesota. And then, thank God, I got student loans because my parents refused to send me to college. And I escaped to California and, and never looked back. And you know, I graduated from San Diego State. I had to see therapists there because I was suffering from PST, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. So, And thank God I had a very good ther- therapist for once in my life, Dr. Helen Roth, who was the head of the Child and Developmental Psychology Department at San Diego State University. And uh, she thought something was very wrong. And so she she tried to get all my psychiatric records and neither facility would would release them too early, and uh, and uh, and uh, and so I could never find out, uh, you know, what really happened why I was put away, and because um, they make you feel like, you know, all these years that you're the, you know, that's something that I'm the nut job when that was, you know, that was never the case. But eventually, um, I I had a friend who was in the Wilson Center. And he he was a good friend of mine. We stayed in touch, and he was he was not mentally disturbed either and he he came from rich parents in chicago as well so and they ran in the same circle so we were kind of kindred spirits his name was dan schwartz and he came to san diego and he told me he was suing his parents and he had an attorney and he got all his medical records and he found out it was all bogus and there was no diagnosis on him and unfortunately dan uh, when he lost his case on a technic on a motion to dismiss he committed suicide and so I, and I was and uh unfortunately I'm the one who found him in nineteen eighty eight and um yeah so I was tough and that's in my screenplay by the way first act and uh so any event so his his attorney helped me get the records and released them to Dr. Ross and she reviewed eight box eight baker's boxes for the six plus years I was in these facilities and she said there's absolutely no diagnosis of why I need to be in those places. And, and, uh, uh, you know, they're just a bunch of generalizations. So then I, by the time I got my records and I sued my parents for their malfeasance and all this, it was too late because the statute of limitations was, was blown. And, uh, and, uh, of course the judge had no, uh, sympathy whatsoever. And she was actually, you know, again, my dad hired attorneys that were connected to the judge. So, 
it's hard to be people who have all sorts of money, you know, like these Jeffrey Epstein's of the world. They just get away with their crimes. And like I said, my mother died in 2007. We were, you know, she had a lot. I think she was schizophrenic. She had some really significant mental issues all her life. And uh, we tried to, you know, we maintain some type of relationship. My father and me really didn't have much of one. And, um, yeah, so she died, and he wrote all her. He's an attorney, and he wrote all her uh, state documents and left all the money to himself, which is illegal. And because um, you can't be the beneficiary of being the attorney of an estate at the same time, so so I had to turn around and follow Will Con. Never, he never even told me my mother died in 2007. And as soon as I found out about it through the law, uh, sorry, the Chicago Tribune, then he ran in and started a probate proceeding so make sure I didn't get any money and then he tricked me into settling her estate saying he was dying of cancer and he wanted to reconcile with me and then he then he turned around and sued me because he claimed that because we went out to dinner together I breached the no contact provision of the settlement agreement so he tricked me into that so the kind of person I'm dealing with and then he's been suing me for the last 10 years in Illinois basically to get back the money that that my mother gave me, and I found out the judges were connected to him through the Chicago Bar Association or Illinois Bar, ARDC, it's called. And yeah, I'm up on appeal now, and it's uh, you know it's just a horrible situation for me because um, you know they they don't follow the rule of law because obviously um, once he made contact with me to go to dinner, he waived his the no contact provision of our settlement agreement, which. Um, I didn't even know about because he just lied to me, you know, that he wanted to reconcile the family and he was dying of bladder cancer. And that was in 2009 and he's doing fine now. In fact, he remarried less than a year after my mom died and didn't even bother to put a headstone out of her grave because I went out to see it out and because I never got to say goodbye. And he's way out in the middle of the suburbs out there in Skokie, Illinois. And yeah, this guy's just a monster. And he's this lawsuit has nothing to do with, um, money he's just out to continue to abuse me as an adult and uh, you know I've had to fight him either by myself or five or six attorneys but again all the judges he seems to have connections to and I'm not making this up if anyone wants to watch the documentary Operation Greylord I encourage you to you can look it up on YouTube and tells you how corrupt the Illinois court system is and there was an operation where the federal government uh, busted a bunch of judges for taking bribes in the 80s and 90s and that hasn't changed so unfortunately i didn't know what i was up against when i sued my parents in in the early 90s for their malfeasance and then again dealing with my father now and you know since 2013 so yeah i get to relive this nightmare every day now that i at 61 years of age and that's why i'm even trying harder than ever to to get my movie made so you know and especially after spotlight came out uh i I just I thought I have a better chance, but uh, you know, all the studios want you to come packaged these days. These movies don't make a lot of money. They win Academy Awards, but they don't make money. And uh, you know, when I decided I wanted to tell my story back in '93, I didn't think it would take 30 years later. It would take this long to get my my movie made, but you know, and I thought I had it made in 2008 with another studio and and Julianne Moore cast to play my mom, and they were going to put 20 million dollars into it, but then. We hit a recession and my project got dropped and then I had to find another writer to write it. I'm not a writer. I'm in the music industry. I run a small independent record label for the last 30 years. So 
I've survived all this. I don't know how, and I'm highly functional. I don't know how either. Maybe that's why I don't get a lot of sympathy. But, but uh, that's 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 where things are. If anyone has questions, I, I'm more than welcome to answer them. Yeah, I, excuse me. I was just going to say that. You know, we we spoke a little bit about before we came on how we're, our stories are all different, but in a way they're all connected and um, just to share. I know it's not about me, it's about your story, but just to share. I had a similar instance happen with my brother when my brother died. His ex-wife took all of his, it, he didn't have a whole lot of money. He wasn't wealthy like your parents were, but um, but they took, you know, she took pretty much all of his money that he had in cash and um, decided it wasn't for the funeral, that they didn't have to the kids. He had three children, but they were grown. You know, the grown children didn't have to contribute to his funeral. And then they, the grown children made a decision also to put him in a place that he didn't want to be. He wanted to be buried by my mom. And um, they put him out in this rural, just gravel pit. So I I just empathize with you just as you were talking about that because I kind of know that feeling of, you know, people just are so selfish and you know they don't ever think about anybody else I mean that was your mom and um, and you should be able to still have some hers just because she was your mom but I'm sorry that they were like that because I know how complicated that could be as well I know that you know my mom enabled my abuser and, and that's the other way that I can really emphasize with you is I still deal with one of my abusers who is my dad as well and um, he's very elderly and he doesn't have money um, we're on the opposite end of that spectrum and um, so I don't expect anything but I I get frustrated even though I've forgiven him and there's there's been a lot of things that have happened to the come to this point and we are the only ones left I mean we are because my brother died and my mom died, but um, and it, it's hard. I know it's just frustrating having to deal with a person that you know you just are never going to really get anywhere with. It's just not going to make a difference. And um, you know, well, the sad part is I didn't realize how evil he was. So that's the problem because you want to always yeah. have uh, yeah. believe in your parents. You know that they're gonna they're supposed to be acting in your best interest. So every time. Just like when I forgave him at the settlement conference on my mom's estate, they just turned around and stabbed me in the back. So I didn't realize how, you know, just, you know, it's hard to believe that you came from someone that uh, evil to begin with. I mean, it's it's hard to come to terms with that because they're supposed to be your parents. Yeah. Well, and it takes a very strong person. I mean, I hope that you you do realize that of yourself, that you, even though you haven't maybe you know, done this um, screenplay yet made a huge difference because you chose not to, to do the same path that your cho- your parents took. I mean, you're trying to be, from what I understand, and I can hear you're trying to be a good citizen. You're not trying to take advantage of people, and you're just and you're trying to be helpful. And all you want in return is, you know, some kind of give and take. And I can, you know, definitely relate to that as well. That um. You know, just be nice if you're, you know, just 
we're there for you, right? <laughs> and did we had your best interest at heart? That's just what they're supposed to be to you. So, exactly. I mean, either they shouldn't have children at all, is what I think. You know, if they weren't ready to be parents and take the responsibility, obviously they weren't. And back in those days, the you know there's pressure to have family. So my first sister apparently was born as a still stillborn and and died and. And uh, and it took them forever to conceive, so maybe that was a sign from God that they shouldn't even have children because they weren't interested in raising them, you know. So we were just treated like property, and if you, you know, if you acted out or did anything, then you were just, you know, you were thrown away like me. And you know, my story is one of survival and and you know, in re- re- redemption because I sur- I don't know how I survived. I should be dead like a thousand times over, and or be, you know completely incapacitated because there's no way, you know, that I should have survived all that. And and I'm still having to fight, you know, with, again, with my, with the person who committed all these crimes and he's, he, he's considered a pillar of the community back there. That's the worst part of it all. And no matter anyone who speaks out against him, it, it never gets, it never gets out there. So I've had some uh, lady, Joanne Dennison, write a, a very strong letter to the ARDC of Illinois about my father and because they have a thing called the Himmel duty. If you're almost like with the schools, if they believe someone's been abused, they're supposed to report that person to the state bar, a lawyer, another lawyer. And only one lawyer in Illinois has done that. And she was already disbarred. So what does that tell you? <laughs> so they all cover up for each other. So I mean, they make child abuse into a cottage industry back there. It's just, it's just, uh, heinous so i mean to just to uh fight uh just to have human rights i mean it's just uh it's outrageous it's like you would expect that in a third world country or but not in the united states of america it's just and you know that stuff happened you know most of those things or at least the uh, when i was a child all happened to me in the 60s and 70s and i'm well convinced now after going through this with my father this could happen all all over again that's why people need to speak out that's why people need to weigh in in my case in illinois right and an amicus brief can be written by it doesn't even need to be written by an attorney you can write it as a in in, in pro per or pro se you could write an amicus brief all you have to do is get permission from the court to weigh in on on my legal issues because they're all involving child abuse this has nothing to do with money and my dad has hundreds of millions of dollars that probably never even spends you know it's not about money to him. It's just about abuse and and power. So that's so these people when they have that much money, it's just about power. They don't care, you know. And how dare you, you know, you know. So that's that's what my and I'm not and I'm and I'm not the first person to to go through this in my family. They they did this to my my mother's brother. So he was the the blueprint. And of course, you know, they he was he turned into the doormat. So he had some. He did have some type of nervous breakdown, and 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 my and it was literally the and he was an adult, and it was literally the the men in the white coats kidnapped him and shot him full of full of thorazine and and drove him cross country to Rockville, Maryland, and dumped him into some place called the Chestnut Lodge, and for he was there for like 15 or 20 years, like literally a cuckoo's nest. And so they figured, you know, what's good for the goose is good. And then, by the way, my parents stole all his money too. So these are people who actually are completely morally bankrupt. So I didn't, you know, just realize that when you go back and look into the story, these people have absolutely, that's why you guys said psychopath, because those are people who have absolutely, you know, no, uh, 
hum, humanity for anyone else, even their own children. So what is, you know, so anyway, they did the same thing to my uncle. So in the 60s, so they figured, why not do it to a five-year-old toddler? <laughs> so, you know, throw him in the lion's den. So. Yeah, sorry. Well, why don't we see if it's okay with you if Miss um, Tammy has anything that she wants to say or ask you? Is that okay? Sure. Bring Miss Annie on. Hi, Annie. You're Hello. On. Paul. Thank you. Hello, Paul. Hi. Thank you for sharing your story and. I wanted to know when you went to San Diego State, what did you study? Uh, my major was geography, of all things. I wound up in the music oh, industry. Uh huh. Wow. Okay. I'm just involved with colleges and stuff, and so I'm just curious about it. Cool. Yeah. I and to, um, uh, it was a great experience. It was probably the best experience of my life. Well, that's wonderful. Um, and I just want to say congratulations on having a screenplay and good luck with your project. And um, I think that's all I have to say. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Annie. <laughs> okay. So we also have Philip. In the panel, so Philip, I'm bringing Hello, you buddy. on. How are you tonight? <laughs> hey, man. I'm sorry you hey. had to go through that, but I'm I'm happy that you had a good experience at school. Is there a question? Um, no, I don't have any questions. Okay. Thank you, Philip. Maybe after a while, I have a question for you. Um, so your parents were still together, correct? When you, when she, when your mom died, they were still married. Yeah, if you can call it were that. They? they had a very dis dysfunctional relationship. I mean, wow. my mother, yeah. <laughs> my mother's, my mother's father. I mean, she brought all the money to the marriage. My, my, our family. Well, I'll give you a little backstory. The family, I mean, they all left during the Russian Revolution in you know early 1900s, and their Jewish descent. So they, at that time, they sent all the Jews to Omaha, Nebraska. So that's where my family was based out of. And then my grandfather, my mother's father, was a very successful attorney, and he was actually brilliant. He was actually a, a, a humanitarian. So this is the irony of all, all this. He he set up an organization called the AZA which was the equivalent of the YMCA because in the 1920s and 30s, you know, there's a, so much anti-Semitism, which hasn't gone away in this country, and no Jews were allowed to join the YMCA. So he said the AZA, so Jewish kids could have a place to, you know, do athletics and whatnot. So anyways, my grandfather, um, his brother-in-law, Phil Klutznik, who eventually became the Secretary of Commerce in the, in the Carter administration, he came to Chicago to um, to develop suburbs in the south of Chicago called Park Forest, Illinois, and apparently that project, he, uh, he was over his head, so he enlisted and got my grandfather to move to Chicago to 
to turn Park Forest around because it was it was going under when they were developing it in the 50s. So that's how my family wound up in Chicago. And then my father, um, you know, you know, married into money, basically. So I don't even know what they had in Cobbett. So and so that was my grandfather kept him out of the um, kept him out of the Korean War. And so my grandfather had a lot of pull. In fact, he he met with President Dewey to get um, to tell them about all the what was going on in Nazi Germany when they kind of like here and all the America didn't want to get involved in in helping the six million Jews that got slaughtered. And my grandfather knew about all and he went to meet with Dewey and my grandfather was a champion of humanitarian. So it's, uh, he would be rolling over in his grave if he saw what was going on with me. And uh, also he was involved in, I had a cousin or his cousin Ethel Rosenberg that was executed by in the McCarthy area in the 1950s when she had, had did nothing wrong. And my grandfather went to me with uh, President Eisenhower to try to, to, I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but uh, her husband was convicted of spying and they executed her anyways in an electric chair in the 50s. So my grandfather, you know, was a champion of, and that's where all the money came from. So, and uh, yeah, so that's, and I get my dad couldn't even get my mom a decent burial and he's remarried within a year. He was probably seeing that woman. So yeah, my parents were married, but they slept in separate bedrooms in the house for probably since I was in third or fourth grade. And for the time I was living at home and, uh, so it was a very dysfunctional relationship, uh, and and, uh, she, and she suffered from all sorts of uh, ailments. And uh, ironically, she got her PhD in psychology. So someone who's that emotionally disturbed and giving someone else advice how to live her life is is a, is a pretty disturbing. But she she had a lot of problems. She she, she like my medical records stated she would disappear she had some kind of postpartum issue after having every child and she would just go into uh isolation and disappear on the family for weeks on end and and leave us with uh, uh nannies who used to beat us unmercifully as well all me and my sisters and uh and or leave us uh out of the house without any food and we're like three or four or five years old and social services had to be called and that was and you know, when we first lived in uh, Glencoe, Illinois, so we're moving to the city in the late, sorry, late uh, 1960s. So, so yeah. So to answer your question, that they, they had, uh, uh, they were married, but it was a, it was a marriage. I don't, I don't. It was a very dysfunctional marriage. Yeah. Well, yeah. It always is. Now, do you know, um, like? For instance, your father's story at all, or your mom's story, were they, were either one of them abused as a child? Do you know that part of their stories or not? I'm just curious. Well, I think my mom, to some degree, she had never shed all the uh, facts because, you know, her brain wasn't exactly functioning <laughs> properly. But yeah. the times that we, that I mean, she came up to the Wilson Center once to see me and she said I, I couldn't come back and live at home. Some of this is a 15 year old kid because I reminded her too much of her brother and she would destroy me. So I don't know what I'm still trying to figure out what that means. And then she claimed when I said, that's not fair. Yeah. And then she said, that's life's not fair. And then, and she said, you think you have a bad when your grandfather used to beat me. He said, it's going to hurt him more than it's going to hurt her. And you know, those kind of cliches. 
So I, I she she and then she claimed that you know when she grew up that the boy my uncle was the you know star of the family and the and the daughters were just you know ignored back in those days and she had to literally do like cartwheels to get my grandparents' attention. So so I think she carried on some issues with her childhood to me and my father. You know he grew up in a middle to lower class family and. You know, but he and he was always the star of his family, and and the and uh, it was just him and his brother, and his brother had, you know, he he had some ish, psychological issues as well, and and so he was the star, and and my grandmother, my dad's mother was one of these people who had a rain cloud overhead, and, you know, and she was never happy with anything in in her life, and she had she my grandfather, my dad's father was just some head head pecked husband who just tried to take a job to stay away from her. And like I said, they were middle of the lower class family in Omaha. You know, I visited both of their residences when I went back to Omaha to see, and my mom lived in a mansion and my dad kind of lived in a shack. So I don't know how they got together to begin with and then any event. So, um, so yeah, Yeah. I have some familiarity with their stories. Yeah. And I, the reason why I did ask that is because, you know, that's what we hear a lot of times is that this abuse is generational. And when you think of generational, you think of, you know, like maybe the same person, the same family member or something doing it. But that's not how it usually works. It usually is because somebody is abused. They And, and like you said, maybe their brain aren't is it developed because it was such it at the time that they had their trauma and um and so then when they go on you know as their bodies are matured and they go on to be adults did they decide that they need to have a kid and they're not mature enough to be able to take care of that child you know mentally yeah well that's obvious in and, my situation um, <laughs> me and my yeah, sisters exactly. that's completely no, obvious that, yeah it's the whole generational thing and and i definitely saw that in my family as well you know, I saw the sexual abuse that was carried on from generation to generation, which wasn't the same, but there was this, um, like my mom especially was very enabling to my dad. And so she, you know, would stick with him no matter what. You know, they kind of, they had a very multiplistic relationship as well. And, you know, they were on drugs and stuff when I was younger too, but... um which I'm sure didn't help <laughs> any, but when it came to, to push and shove, they would stick up for each other, you know, anytime. Yeah, and, they were, they were they pretty much united against me. There's no, they were pretty united against right. me. So that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I, they made yeah. me into the pariah and black sheep and they even, you know, brainwashed me against my sisters that I'm, that I'm the devil. I'm the bad, you know, I'm the problem. I'm the cause of all the problems in the family. We brainwashed it well, to them all these years. In you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say, but it, it takes somebody like you who's going to change that trajectory. So, you know, even though you've struggled all your life, there's a good possibility if you did not carry on that abuse that, you know, people in the future in your family yeah, well, I broke the cycle. I have two children. I never yeah. put a hand on them either, just, verbal or verbal. Yeah. I have two children. There you go. I've, I've broken the cycle, yeah. but I still there's other people who haven't, and that's why we it's important to get the yeah. 
my story out there, and I always feel like I'm on a desert island shooting up a signal flare, and no one's no no one sees it. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, you have a family here at NASCA, and um, you know we want you to come around anytime you want to be a part of the panel or be a part of the. I don't know if you're on Facebook, you know, any of the Facebook conversations and stuff, because we all have been there in one way or another, you know, and so we want to be there. Try and be there for each other if if we can. Well, it would be nice if someone in this organization was a lawyer, because I could use someone to write a a friend of the court brief, (laughs) and I'm still battling my father in Illinois. Yeah. Well, and you never know. So just being um, very intentional on talking to people, and I know a lot of times, I'm not a very outgoing person, believe it or not. (laughs) I try to be when I'm, you know, doing shows and things like that, but I'm not really, I'm more of an introvert. So, you know, pushing yourself to to get out there and make those connections and stuff is is huge as well. And I know that she, it sounds like you've been trying to do that for a while. But I was going to ask you. Well, I have to do it for um, my movie because, uh, you know, otherwise you get ignored. You know how many follow-ups I have to do to agents and production companies and studios was you just get lost in the, you know, I'm not the only person in LA who was trying to get their movie made. So you, you said that to... you've been in the music business for 30 years or something. Probably um, longer than that. I mean, I've had what? my own record company for 30 years now since 93. Oh, okay. Awesome. So what made you think to do a movie? And not a book like everybody else does. Kind of explain that process. First of all, I'm not a writer. I'm an A&R guy. I mean, I've always, even in my movie, you know, I mean, music was my escape from all the insanity around me. So that was, that's, I've always been go to my music to escape from, you know, all the craziness, either my parents or other patients or, you know, so music has always been a theme in my life. And then when I was in, College, you know, I I got involved with the college radio station and DJed around San Diego and managed bands and so it was always my thing and that was always my passion. So, and there when I got out of college, there were no jobs other unless I wanted to go work in for the fence mapping agent in St. Louis and there's no way in hell I was going back to the Midwest. So, so I just started, you know, working for other record companies and then I and. And ironically, I worked for a record company out of Chicago, and that I pretty much uh, was a fan of, and called Wax Tracks Records. There's a documentary on that uh, uh, record company called Industrial Accident that you can watch on Amazon Prime if uh, your listeners are so inclined. It tells you the genre that I worked in, and that label went under and the founders died of both of AIDS. So I kind of carried the torch and, you know, I had a passion for that music. And so, you know, it's been, I started Van Richter Records in 93 and, you know, I've been running the label. You know, that's been, uh, it's not been easy, you know, for that either because of the way the music industry, you know, with, with Napster and kids don't want to buy music anymore and all the record stores closing. I mean, that was the source of most income for record companies as when, People actually went out and bought physical CDs or, or albums. So, but you know now we do most of the stuff through iTunes. So I mean, you know, we're not, I'm not getting rich or anything, but you know, surviving, which is more than most other record companies. You know, keeping the lights on around here. But you know, I still enjoy it. You know, I still enjoy my job. It's been my passion. So, 
and it's you know it's my legacy, and so I, I, I you know I'm happy that I've been able to put art art out in the world. You know that that's never going to go away. Oh. Yeah, tell me the name of the record company again of your record company. Uh, Van Richter, V A N R I C H T E R. If you go to vanrichter.net, I I sent that link to Bill Murray, your I guess CEO, and so. We've had a website since yeah. before Amazon, 1995. So I've been lucky to have a very yeah. good webmaster who's stuck with me since then. So okay. and now we just we're all we're all digital. We don't release any physical music anymore because there's really no record stores. <laughs> Once Tower Records went under, and there's a documentary about that as well that was done by uh, Colin Hanks, which is Tom Hanks's son. He, I suggest watching that too. That's on either YouTube or Amazon, and tells you I mean, that was that was a major chain for independent music throughout in the United States. And when I think they went under in 2008, it, you know, that and Napster were really the game changers in the music industry that moved everything online. And if you couldn't adapt, you were gone. And there's so many other record companies that have gone under. Like you know, I could spend an hour just telling you them about them, but you know. And somehow that theme of my life is I'm a survivor. I survived all the abuse and then survived all the tribulations in the record industry. So I don't know, some reason, you know, some people either survive or they just, you know, throw themselves on the electrified fence. So for some reason, I guess that's in my DNA. Like, you know, unlike my uncle who was the doormat and, and you know, he just wound up uh, basically willing himself to death after what they did to him. So... You know, I, I just, you know, I have one life and I figure, you know, I'm just going to make, you know, I'm not going to let them di- dictate who I am, my, what my parents did to me. So, you know, I'm doing what I, I, I want to do, but, you know, I'm still having to deal with my monster, literally. So, so you know, I could use help from anyone uh, in this Illinois case because uh, I'm up on appeal and that's going to be an important decision to hopefully get rid of his lawsuit against me. So once and for all. By the way, the guy's 92 years of age. You think he'd have something better to do with his life? Oh, wow. Um, my parents, are, well, my mom was only 54 when she died. And um, my, and my, mom my dad was, is... My mom was in her seven seventy-three. Was she? Yeah. yeah, but it was only a matter of time. So, remember the last time I saw her? She, she had, I think she had anorexia too, because she would barely eat. And when I last time I saw her, she was like she was emaciated. And I went, so I went back to Chicago for a speaking engagement at a music convention, and we hadn't talked since I sued them in the '90s. And she wanted to see me. My father refused, <laughs> but but she saw me, and she was she's just terrible, and she was she wasn't even coherent. That was in 2001. Hard. Yeah, it was because like it was hard yeah. to have a good, I mean, you know. And this guy's supposed to be married to her, and he doesn't even take care of his own wife. <laughs> and that time she had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma too, so so she eventually died of. But I think of that, and she never ate a damn thing. Growing, she exercised like crazy, but didn't eat anything. So what good is that? So. <laughs> oh, yeah, so she had to save it from probably did. Well, yeah, so she was like, kind of like a tragic, tragic figure, really. I mean, I didn't, I don't have as much animosity towards her as my father. I mean, because I think he's just truly an evil person. 
but she, you know, she had she had a hard life. Even though she came up, well, you know, she grew up in a privileged life. She had a hard life, you know, and she was all messed up. So at least I have, and then at least she tried to make amends with me to some degree at, towards the end of her life. So. Well, and a lot of times I think it is the mother that would do it over the father. I mean, there's just that, you know. Well, ironically, when I grew up, I thought she was more evil than my father because she was scary like a mommy dearest. You know, <laughs> she used to yell at me. I mean, you know, my, she acted uh, you know worse than Joan Crawford when I grew up. You know, she was crazy and scream at me and do all sorts of crazy things. She, so tell she us traumatized how... me. She traumatized me quite a few times. So I can give you some examples. I mean, they're in my screenplay. <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to um, see where you're at with all of that. Um, well, again, if so any of the organization knows a uh, A-list director, feel free to reach out to them because this is a fabulous script now. I mean, everyone who's read it tells me it's a great story, even though they some directors don't want to tell it. Yeah. Yeah, well... And, you know, like you said, it's not really something that's told a whole lot either. But um, so if you... Well, that's unfortunate if because if it was to, out there, if this was out there more, the Me Too movement and all these other ones were out there more trying to get this out in, in the public, then maybe we wouldn't be we wouldn't be here, you know, with future generations. And this stuff would all stop. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I do a class. I go out and I educate adults on how to watch for child sexual abuse, and um, and so I understand that importance of, you know what, you need to stop the secret, first of all. You know, if, if people are talking about it on a regular basis in their homes, at, a, at their schools, and, you know, not, not so much as, you know, you have to give lectures about it all the time, but, you know, just letting kids know about body safety and that they are also... Um, allowed to live in a, a peaceful environment. And I think that it takes um, a lot of times that maybe you can relate to this too at some point in your life lifetime. Um, I think it takes a child being able to see that there is another way somehow for them to change that trajectory. You know what I mean? Because it's hard to imagine that I would have known that there was anything different other than the abuse that I was experiencing. Well, I didn't know either. Yes, and I there were no resources for me and there was no one to reach out to. I had no one to reach right. If they knew there was people to reach out to, people who would help them. That time, you know, you're just treated like you're a piece of luggage, you know? So, so there was like, uh, there, right. you know, the only person I reached yeah. out to was my grandmother and she goes, I can't go against your parents. And she realized what they were doing was wrong because I see her, the pain in her eyes. My mother's mother well, yeah. was the sweetest person in the world. They, they thought that they couldn't do anything. When in reality, no, they she goes, I can't go should've. against your parents. I can't. That was her response. Right. Like, you know, father knows best. Your parents, right. you know, thou should, thou, the Ten now, Commandments, you know, obey thy father and mother. That's what she, <laughs> no matter what horrible things, we light you on fire. You know, they're never going to, you know, you can't get. Their, that ideology out of their heads. It's an ideology. It has nothing to do with my grandmother and grandfather are per perfectly capable. I told you all the things my grandfather did. 
I mean, that time, by that time he had Alzheimer's, but she was still around uh, capable of, of helping me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I it is kind of fear of not knowing where she would be supported if she could ever be supported. So she recognized it, but maybe she just didn't know how to report no, it. No, that or... wasn't the issue. It was an ideology that she grew brainwashed into her head. It had nothing to do with she didn't know oh, who yeah. to go to. <laughs> she didn't know who to go yeah. to. The ideology well, from the Bible the and thing. the Father yeah. knows best. You know, and the, right. It was an ideology. Right. It wasn't that she was an adult. She was perfectly capable of going to the police department, or <laughs> so, so she thought that she. So she thought that uh, if she wanted to do that, that she had this ideology. You know, she grew up with a Pollyanna, rose-colored glasses. You know, you know type of uh, mentality and everything's wonderful. You're wonderful. And just to see and that's, that's, I think what caused her to have her stroke when I was in college. Cause then she realized, you know, what happened to her own son when he was thrown away in a mental hospital and, and to me. And so I think she just snapped at the end of her life because, uh, you know, and unfortunately before I graduated college, she was incapacitated uh, pretty much. And she had a stroke and, they kept her. My parents kept her under basically lock and key until they could take all her money. Yeah, I didn't get any mementos from my grandmother. I didn't get any mementos from my mother. Even you know, even a picture when and they died. So this is how heartless these people are. So they have so no, you know, uh, compassion for human life. So it's just so it's just it's just what will happen unconstant. when your what will happen when your father dies then. Will you have access to their I, stuff at that point? Or your, I don't know. Are you still I'll, friends I'll, I'll to talk. sisters? No, they do whatever my father tells them to do. I told you they got brainwashed uh, when I was a yeah. kid. And I can't, uh, when I settled my mom's estate, I'm not allowed to be in any contact with them, which uh, they were molested too, because I used to see my father go up to their bedroom completely naked. So obviously something was going on then too. And we when I when the years nine through fourteen, because he had to cross the hallway to go up to their bedroom, so I saw him. We used to run around the house naked at night. This guy was a monster. So I don't know what happened to them. But obviously, even if he didn't even touch them, Doctor Ross said that's a form of child abuse to be running around the house naked at night, well, so in front of small yeah. children. It's ridiculous. It sounds like yeah. It sounds like you know that that was. Something definitely going on. Um, it, it, it reminded me when you were talking mm-hmm. about your wealthy family and how nobody would believe that anything like that could happen because of their status. And um, that's like, the problem because they go in the community community and they like pillar. They put this right. fake facade out on the community. You know, how, you know how great they are and yeah. you know and and you know and standing up and, and really when they're just beating the crap out of their own kids or you know it's ridiculous. It's a, you know, it's 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 out, it's outrageous, and it's it's you know, and that and that society lets them, you know, and they get away with it. And yeah, my sisters are just, yeah. you know, brainwashed lemmings. In fact, they all still live, yeah, they're suckling so close to the power teeth in Chicago. All three of them live in Chicago. I'll tell you, and they're in their fifties and sixties. So yeah, it's. Uh, you know, either, and I think it's a combination of that and stock, Stockholm syndrome with my sisters, but they're never gonna, you know, right. not gonna break the cycle. They, they're brought up a certain way to believe a certain thing, and you know, obviously their, you know, their minds have been conditioned, and 
Apparently they're not strong enough. They weren't strong enough back then. They were submissive back, you know, way back when. Why, why is that going to change? You know, some people never change their ways or have any kind of a self-realization in life, and they just go, you know, the same. They can never see beyond that point or the forest through the trees. You know, I see that with a lot of people. They're not that self-aware as I am. <laughs> you know, that's the problem. Yeah. So you know why they, you know you know but some people can't change. The joke in psychotherapy is like. How many how many people does it take to change a light bulb? And he goes, one because the light bulb has to want to change, <laughs> and so you know they don't they don't want <laughs> they're they're used to being conditioned in a certain way, and they're they're never going to change. So I, and I don't expect to ever yeah. get a call from them about anything. And so, but yeah, they were you know it's it's sad for them because even though they got all the money and whatever, I I know one thing is for sure they're not happy any of them. You know, money yeah, can't buy you happiness, and there's. Go ahead. I'm the only one I other than my youngest you. sister who has even has children. I'm the only one. <laughs> my oh, father won't have anything to do. <laughs> yes, I'm the only one who has children. I have a daughter and a son. So tell us. So yeah. So tell us about your family, and you know, how old is your are your children grown? I I imagine they're full grown. Well, one's a, one's a, one's a, yeah one's thirty, and then I have a daughter who's fifteen. So age difference. Oh okay. Yeah. And, uh, I had a big gap like that as well with my kids, just uh, where they the way they came. So so you so your thirty year old son is that what you said? Yes. Yes. Um, does he know your story and does he know your parents at all? Did he ever know them? No, my parents didn't want to have anything to do with him. So I protected him for the first 14 years because I didn't want them to do the crap they did to me. So the first 14 years, I, I didn't want, I didn't tell them I even had a son because I didn't want them to, you know, who knows what the hell they would try to do. After <laughs> what they did to me, mm-hmm. I didn't want them, you know, I didn't want them ruined. So I protected him. So and even though my uncle Harley, you know, my mother's brother, I told him and he kept begging me to tell my parents and everything would change as long as they knew they had a grandchild, right? So bad kids long before anyone else. My son was born in 92, right about the time that I had sued my parents. So, um, yeah, so I never told them. And then actually I went back to Omaha when my uncle died. They, they, they left him in squalor in a rundown apartment in Chicago, penniless, my parents, nice people, huh? They kicked, he was, when he, when he came back to Chicago from Maryland, he was living with my grandmother and my father, my parents kicked him out. (laughs) This is how heartless these people are. And he was living in squalor in some rundown apartment in a bad area of Chicago. And then he eventually died. And, um, and I went to Omaha for his funeral in 2006 because, you know, he, he was like of my father to me, believe it or not. So, you know, he helped me when I started talking to him in high school and when I was out of the Wilson Center and in college and afterwards, you know, he he was like my father. He's the only guy in the family that had any heart. So and of course we both been through been tortured, so we were you know, we had we was like support group for each other, right? So in any event, it was hard for him to believe to begin with that I'd gone through all that and then, you know, he confirmed it all and he, of course he blamed it all on my father because that was you know, it's hard for him to blame it on his own sister, right? So and he didn't like my father anyways. So he goes, I could have t- stopped the marriage. I go, so why the hell didn't you? <laughs> what the hell? 
Where the hell did you? So in any event, um, yeah, so I went back to the funeral in 2006 because, you know, I, I was going to go. I actually was told when, when the guy who was taking care of my uncle told me when he died, so I definitely was going to get on a plane and go there. I was living in San Diego, and so and I brought a picture of my son with me from junior high school, you know, one of those 8 by 10 glossies, and I had it in an envelope. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to do this for my uncle. You know, I'm going to tell him about my, my son because you know, he kept bugging me all these years to tell my parents about my son, right? So, so I said, you know, I'm going to go. I flew into Omaha. I went to this my funeral, and then, and then we after the funeral we had a, a you know, reception at my one of my aunt Dorothy's house, and then my dad was bragging about my youngest sister Rachel had a had a daughter, Leah, and she's oh look, Paul, here's your here's your niece, and I go oh, by the way, here's here's your grandson. So I had this big picture, and the guy freaked out. He was all angry and. At me, why did you? And he's like, and, and he was asking me who the, you know, they were just, he was being an, a jerk. And then he's like, I thought he was going to have me go out on the lawn and get in the fisticuffs with me. So he was like, you know, interrogating me. And so, in any event, yeah, so he was, they were angry. I never told them I had a son because I was, I did that to protect him. And then they didn't even want to have anything to do with him anyway. So, what's the difference? So, so other than when my father lied to me when my mother died and, he went back to my hotel with me and had dinner after we signed the settlement agreement. Told me he was dying of bladder cancer and said when he went through uh, chemo, he wanted my son to come visit him in Chicago. But I, that was a, just a awesome performance to make sure that the settlement agreement went through and that he could turn around and sue me for being in contact with him. So, but yeah, to answer that question, and then he didn't seem to be very interested in any of my. And my daughter was born after my mother died, so. But I, when I, my dad was aware of that because I told him about that when we, when we, when we were talking during the settlement agreement in 2009 when I had to go back to Chicago and you know, he didn't he didn't have anything nice to say about her either and he was just asking about the woman who you know the mother and made some uh, racist remark that you know, only because when I was I'm not married and only because only black people have children out of wedlock. I mean, he's just you know. He's such an ass. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, so, so that's that, that's hopefully that answers your question. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know what? We have um, we're down to just 27 minutes left in the show. I was thinking maybe we could go back down the panel again and see if anybody has any questions or anything so far. Is that okay? Sure. So I'm going to bring Annie on. Annie, you're on. Hi. I have a question, Paul, and that is, what did you do to heal yourself from all the trauma? Well, I I sought help. First day when I started at San Francisco State, I saw therapists there through the student services, and then I saw, you know, Dr. Ross for... So I graduated in 83 at San Diego State, and she actually became a friend of the family, and, you know, I was friendly with her up until she passed away a couple of years ago. So she, you know, so that's 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 what I did, tried to, you know, and, you know, and uh, unfortunately when I'm still having to deal with, you know, the abuse of my father, it's, now I, it's, it's really hard now because I really don't have, uh, you know, Dr. Ross passed, and uh, I'm very much battling this thing on my own. Have you ever tried going to any of the groups? I, I used to go to a group of of adult survivors, 
and we just got together. It was anonymous, and we told each other our stories. I found that yeah, I went really. To one when I, I went to one, uh, and it, I don't know, it wasn't very helpful, and the people were so dysfunctional that it wasn't really helpful at all. It reminded me more of being back in these mental hospitals, to be quite honest, and where I didn't even huh. need to be to, be to belong with. So, you know, the people in this, you know, it was a volunteer group. Uh, that I went to, and yeah, that wasn't it wasn't helpful at all. And you know, the most helpful person was Dr. Ross because she was she knew how to listen. I mean, all these other therapists in these facilities, they were, they should have been patients, and even the psychiatrists there. So they were more <laughs> they were more screwed up than the, the patients. So yeah, so yeah, I've you know I've I've seeked and you know help to overcome the post. Uh, the PSTD and, you know, depression I've had uh, and, you know, but yeah, there's not a lot of people out there who are helpful or supportive in the way that, you know, that, that, that I need, like I said. So yeah, I have tried to, I tried a group once before when I was probably in the early 2000s. And like I said, those people were, were so dysfunctional that it was more, it was more harmful than, it was more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Any other modalities that you use besides therapy, like do you read any good books about healing or see any good movies about healing, anything like that? Well, when I wrote the screenplay with this woman uh, who had been sex trafficked, when I did the rewrite with her, I thought that was kind of a cathartic experience, even though I was having nightmares at night. When I was working on it before, when I had been working on this thing since '93. And when I told Dr. Ross about it, she thought it was would be therapeutic. So, in some way, that was helpful. And yeah, watching you know other stories like Spotlight and all that, it's just the fresh you know they're good, but it's just a frustration that you know so rare to get these stories out there, and and all they're going to do is help people. So, but you know, it's a Hollywood's um, it's all about money. So, but yeah, no no books. I mean, I've done you know when I was. Living in San Diego, you know, I was doing more yoga and some things, you know, for stress, trying to do some meditation and to, for the stress because, you know, especially dealing with my father, it's very stressful. And, you know, mm-hmm. like it's a never-ending story with that guy because all he's about is abusing me. And now, unfortunately, I have to just outlast him. <laughs> so, so it's just like a battle of attrition. So, but, you know, I I don't give up. I'm, I'm a bit of a fighter. So, I mean, that's kind of, if I have to still fight this thing alone with no support, then that's what I'll have to do. But, you know, obviously I'm still going to reach out and hope that someone's going to help me along the way. Thank you. I'll turn it back to you, Kim. Thank you, Amy. I was going to say I have a hard time in group settings, and I think, you know, a lot of times if you're an empath, you take on so much of the energy in the room that it's hard to get any anything done. And I kind of am that way. I've noticed over the years, if I ever try and go into group settings, I'm more of the one to just, you know, feel for everybody else. And it's, I'm not really able to process, you know, my own feelings. So I don't know if you relate to that at all or not. But no, I just felt, I mean, I mean, I didn't, I, I hadn't had... 
group since I was in the institutions, and like I said, those people were so messed up that you know it was it was more of a distraction. In fact, I, I used to hide from group, and they used to take me and and you know literally physically throw me into <laughs> into uh, those settings. And again, some guy you know put a hammer lock on me and found me hiding because I didn't want to go. But like I said, when I went voluntarily as an adult, the people in these groups, you know, they can. They were so dysfunctional. It's like, how are these people going to help me when they can't even help themselves, you know? So <laughs> it was like, you know, I felt like I was back in one of these facilities. And, you know, and one guy, remember, I, after the group was over, I asked him once you know, if he just wanted to go to Denny's, and he started just acting out on me. And I go, this is it. I go, I'm not going back. <laughs> I'm, not going, I'm not going back, you know, just to <laughs> so screw that. So you know, I tried it. There was a – when I was living in Pasadena, and there was a – a voluntary group that met at the Huntington Hospital. So, and then they had the, and then the the, the real, and it was all run by you know other. It wasn't, there was no therapist. It was just run by uh, you know other pe- other people who had problems. And and what was the real kicker? One day this guy brought, and there was one guy who was kind of like the moderator, but he was really just another you know person who had issues. And uh, he had a printout of of some. Uh, piece of some paper that was written by the first doctor, Dr. Bettelheim in Pritzker. That guy's been debunked. All his theories have been debunked. <laughs> and he used to torture his patients. There's famous books written about that guy, how he used to torture his patients and stuff. Oh, he apparently, and that he was a fraud and that he didn't really even have a, a MD. <laughs> he was running a psychiatric hospital in Chicago, Dr. Bruno Bettelheim. I don't know if he, it's pretty famous, uh, like I said, that guy was in Dachau and as a prisoner, and that's how he used to torture the patients. And anyone, he all his theories on autism were all debunked, and the guy was nuts. And you know, I had to be exposed to that monster, and it was like a monster in Minnesota who used to prostitute his patients and had his his medical license revoked too, and wound up living out here in California and probably preying on other people until he died in Palm Springs. So. So some of these people just never held a kind and Bettelheim committed suicide, by the way, the first psychiatrist. So those are the type of people who are supposed to be helping you, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. So, I mean, you know, and like I said, and my parents knew both of these guys were bad to begin with because my mom went to Stanford University with Wilson, and she said he was a creep back then. So why the hell they throw me in this in his facility, obviously, you know, just to get rid of me. And, and Bettelheim, it was already controversial in – Chicago, because he, you know, and so, yeah, so it's, uh, they knew what they were putting me through to begin with, so it wasn't like, uh, we didn't know, you know, because my Uncle Harley would tell me, oh, they didn't know how bad my place was, and I go, well, I go, BS, they knew how bad my place was, and they even knew who the doctors were, <clears throat> and they didn't care, and they just endangered my life, they didn't give a crap, they probably hoped that i die and problem solved, I and mean, fortunately, the, the really horrific thing in my family is like, they did, all problems are resolved in my family by someone dying. That's how they deal with problems. You go away and you die, and we never want to hear from you again. But if I get my movie out, they're going to hear from me. They're going to hear from me if I get my movie. Yeah. Everyone's going to hear from me. <laughs> yeah. So anyone can help from that well, and give me a director. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you know, we've gotten – we've put the feelers out there. So <laughs> – well, I was going to see if um, maybe Philip had anything that he wanted to ask or anything. Um, Philip, do you do you any volu- hello. Yes. Do you do any volunteer work? 
I've done some in the past. I did some for gave back to my school, San Diego State, when the um, when the um, radio station, college radio station, was uh, almost dormant. So I've, I tried to bring back the college radio station about ten years ago. I did volunteer work out at the university when I was living in San Diego, and, uh, and then I also I did volunteer work when I had more time when I for the uh, Aquarium of the Pacific down in Long Beach. I volunteered down there too, and that was a good experience as well. But recently, recently because of my job and in this litigation with my father and taking care of my daughter, so I haven't had time to do any volunteer work. But I would like to do more in the future, and I'd like to give more back to my my university because you know, I'm, and uh, particularly the athletics program since we've had great success now since we're in the championship basketball game the other day and so I'm a very proud alumni and like I said my experience at San Diego State you know they gave they gave me the opportunity because being these mental hospitals you don't get much of an education so I really had only one year of formal high school education and every university I applied at back in 1979 they all turned me down except for San Francisco State so they took a chance on me and I want to always be grateful to that and I want to give back to People who helped me in my life, and I want to give back to my my school. I want to give back to San Francisco State. And I want to give back to San Diego State, where I graduated from, because it means a lot to me that people believed in me, and most people in my life didn't. And those hospitals, my parents, you know, they know they they all, you know, laughed at me, you know, and uh, discouraged me from having any dreams, and uh, and I had to, you know, do that on my own, and I just wanted to. Be I give thanks to people who actually believed in me and my talent and gave me opportunities in in life. Okay, thank you for sharing. Sure. Yeah. So we are down to just about fifteen minutes left. So would you like to tell us? What else would you like to tell us in these last few minutes? Paul, what else would you like to share? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, the importance of this, your organization and all the ones that are out there that claim that they're helping with child abuse, you know, they really need to get more involved on the legal side of things, you know, because there's really no one out there. There's very few organizations that are willing to to weigh in, you know, there's, there's, uh, mine's not probably not the only case out there that's uh, in in litigation and, and and their issues. You know, these courts, these judges, they don't care. To be honest, I mean, I, Dr. Ross, she filed affidavits in the case against my father. Another doctor who was at the Wilson Center who got fired for speaking out, Dr. David Klemick, out of he's now out of he lives in Ann Arbor and he's you know he's given affidavits in my case and. These judges don't care. So, I mean, you know, you can be raped a thousand times and they don't care. So, I mean, so um, so that's why it's important for organizations like yours to, you know, to to, to weigh in, especially on, at the appellate level, because those judges are supposed to take it seriously. So, and I'm not the only one out there. And, and like I said, it's just going to be systematic child abuse just going on forever because, and some people step up to the plate and, and want to do something about it. And it's just not a question of education. You've got to lay the law down. You know, I mean, some states, I mean, California, fortunately, 
they rolled back the statute of limitations on going after people for sexual abuse for three years, and a lot of states won't do that. Illinois won't do that. They will, and if my parents were living, my father was living in California, I'd be suing him for child, for sexual abuse because that's that's why you see all these ads for the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church because in California and Governor Newsom rolled back the statute of limitations on child abuse. He opened the window for three years from 2020 to 2023. So if you were abused, you know, any time and you were still alive. The statute of limitation wouldn't expire. You can bring your case against whoever did it to you until this year. So most states won't do that. There's a few. I think New York has done that, and I think uh, Minnesota, but, you know, Illinois will never do that. And it's really unfortunate because you have all these people out there who have suffered and continue to suffer from child abuse, and if there were laws against this, it wouldn't happen. So and that's what's the, really the frustrating part of all this. People know they can get away with it. If they didn't, if they knew they couldn't get away with it, like my parents, they wouldn't do it. <laughs> so they knew there was accountability and repercussions. I mean, that's really the bottom line here, not just the education. There needs to be effective laws in this country in all 50 states. And, you know, and that's why it's an opportunity now for you guys to weigh in or any other organization in my case, because laws are not being followed. In my civil rights, in my Due process rights have been violated through the whole case. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's horrific, and uh, you know, unfortunately, I, you know, I haven't been able to get anyone. I have a lawyer handling my appeal, and he seems to be doing a good job. But I need a, a third party to file a brief, weighing in on these important issues, so that the judge will pay attention. Because if an organization is watching over the back like yours, they're more likely to to look at the matter as an objective trier fact, which they're supposed to be doing to begin with. So that's the importance of all this, and that's the reason I had reached out to your organization to begin with. And you know how many I've called, and none of them, most of them blown me off, to be quite honest. Uh, and I've called organizations all over the country that claim that they're involved in advocating for people who've survived, uh, survived from uh, child abuse, and from Ohio to, to you know Philadelphia to you know all over the country, and uh, Colorado, and you know, none of them are willing to help me. So, what does that tell you? <laughs> so, it's a it's a it's a little disheartening uh, to be to say the least. So, I think that's an important part of of these organizations that they really need to step to the plate on the law and and and, and really put a magnifying glass on these issues so that the courts are more inclined now that they're they're not going to let perpetrators get away with this because they know they can get away with it until they're caught, just like Jeffrey Epstein. Absolutely. Well, and just so you know, absolutely, we are, are as as NAFTA, um, we're, as a whole, you know, we're all made up of survivors. And so if there is a way that we can help each other, that's what NAFTA's platform is, is, is giving you this platform to talk about it on this, this radio show. And um, it goes out to, you know, it does go out to hundreds of people. So, you know, People, some people listen, some people don't, and um, and so hopefully there is somebody that can help you. It's um, it's hard to to say that NASCA as an organization, because you know we're a nonprofit, so everybody is volunteer work here, and I think that um, absolutely, if anybody can help you, we would we would love to help you. But you know, just just so you know and understand that it's not. NASCA isn't this great big huge organization that's got hundreds of people working under it and pretty much Bill is the 
you know, is the face of it. And he built this platform, mm-hmm. you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's been a while he's been doing this. Um, you know, so like I said, we can give people like you a place to come on and talk and it can get out to a bigger audience. And definitely just um, getting involved on, like, NASCA's website and um, and getting involved in the, the calls. So just, you know, if you want to kind of call in every once in a while and just kind of get involved with the call, you never know who will be on the line, too. And um, and you're welcome to do that because you're definitely a, a family member of NASCA now, and we appreciate you. Um, it's... I don't know. It looks like somebody else is on the line. I don't know if they would like to ask a question. Or um, let me just check with them real quick. Let's see if somebody that wants to So hi, this is your on live with our guest now. Number one is in one nine seven. Do you want to our guest anything? Chip, 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 you know, more, when yeah. the other uh, panelists said what volunteer work I did, and, and I told them I mean, these lawyers or other people who know something about the law should be should be doing more pro bono work to to help people like me, so that doesn't this does, stuff doesn't kind of happen. You know, it's just going to keep perpetuating and never changes. You know, you hear in the news every day there's a story, <laughs> literally about child abuse. At least here in California, we hear about them all the time. So I go, man, nothing. You know. Yeah. The technology changes, but humanity just remains the same. And it's, it's a sad commentary I have to make, but unfortunately, that's what I see. And so people are willing to step up to the plate and do something about it, you know, not just support groups, but to actually go out and try to make effectuate some change. And this is an opportunity now to effectuate some change in, in my case. So that's what importance of why I came on your show tonight to try to get people involved. Yeah in the process, not just uh, in the legal process. And this is an opportunity to do that. So my appeal brief probably isn't going to be due till August. So if anyone wants to have the ability to, to write a legal brief on, on my case and wants more information, I can put them in touch with my attorney. His name's John Redfield at 847-650-9843. And he's the one having my appeal. All you have to do is get permission from the court, the appellate court, to file the brief. You can weigh in on all the legal issues here that I've discussed tonight, or review the, the docket online, or review the case file. John can make the record on appeal available to you. We just got that. It's six volumes, so it's going to be a lot of reading. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I think that's the important thing that people need to know, that they can get involved and they need to get involved in order to – change to change this so that we're not just having you know more and more uh you know victim uh panels every you know that uh, that there's you know there is some there's some hope here uh, if, if you can change things and that's the important thing you need to be able to change things and there's an opportunity now in my case 
to um, to right a wrong here and to get justice so that perpetrators like this don't get away with their crimes. So that's all I can tell you. And, yeah, and uh, feel- you know, that's one of I was going to say, just feel free to also, you know, make up a post and put it on NASCA's website, too, because that'll reach a lot of people. So you're welcome to do that. Now that you're part of the family, you're welcome to post on on their, um, not on their website, I'm sorry, like on their Facebook page. Do you do Facebook? A little bit. I mean, not so much anymore, but I mean... Unfortunately, yeah. too, you have to have a Facebook page that has a lot of volume, you know, a lot of traffic. And, you know, again, it's like I even put we, we did a WordPress. I think there's a link in in a Facebook and a WordPress link on the bio that Bill had me write up. He was supposed yeah. to do another bio, but apparently that never came through. But uh, um, there's that he was editing because the one you read in the beginning was what I wrote. He was supposed to be putting something else together. But event there's a Facebook oh, and a WordPress link for my uh, for my pages, but they you know get no traffic, so there's just like shooting up a signal flare and on a desert island, you know, no one's gonna see it. So unfortunately, well, you tell have us to, you how know. else can we get a hold of you? Tell us how else we can get a hold of you then. How else can we reach? You? Well, you can get me through those things, or you can get me through our my email address, which is manager at vanrichter dot net. And manager is spelled out. Manager at, at Van Richter, like my label, Van Richter, V A N R I C H T E R dot okay. net. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so there's Paul's email address if anybody is able to help him out in any way, and he would very much appreciate it. And we're very honored that you came on this evening, Paul, and shared your story. And, um, you know, I will definitely be keeping you in in my thoughts and prayers and, um, you know, that everything comes together for you. Because it is, I know it's so frustrating. Not getting right, well, well, my, my last yeah. thought is that, uh, you know, everyone complains about these school shootings and violence, but they never change the law. So it's the same situation here, yeah. you know, you these things are going to just keep going on, you know, just like what happened in Nashville and Sandy Hook. And by the way, I sent John a bunch of op-eds that people written on my behalf. I don't know. I, I, if you, if, I mean, sorry, Bill. So if you want to reach out to him, I sent him a bunch of documents that you might want to read, including two op-eds. One references the Sandy Hook and how it relates to my situation. Sandy Hook Elementary, remember when there was a mass shooting there, so... Again, if people want this stuff to stop or change, mass shootings, also, they, they, need, they need to get involved so the, the, so the laws get changed. So this stuff is just going to keep happening over and over again. So, so I can tell people, and, you know, and, uh, you know, we can all support each other in survivors groups, but the, 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 the great day would co- hopefully would come when we wouldn't need to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I believe that we can... We can get there. Well, well, that's what we need to be working towards. Yeah, that's what we need to be working towards is changing, changing society and changing the laws, mass shootings, all this other stuff doesn't happen again. This is just going to continue to happen until people decide they want to change things and get involved. Oh, and that's what I can can tell your listeners. 
That's that's what I hope I that if my parting words that I can impact your listeners by telling them that to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine. I was just going to say I'm um, having a young child. I've got six grandchildren, and it, you know, it scares me to death, all of the shootings and stuff that are going on. So exactly. We need to make I don't different. like sending my daughter to school either. She's already been through a bunch yeah. of lockdowns at her school. Oh, no, my son crazy. was at a school when my son was at school when someone got stabbed, and so yeah, I mean, it's it's horrible. And again, people need to change change things in order. Uh, so people need to get involved to happen. Yeah. Well, thank you, Paul, for coming on this evening. And um, again, if you want to to reach out to Paul, um, you can reach him at manager at Dan Richard. And um, and then there'll also be some information on the website. This scan number three one five three is available within about a half an hour after the show closes. So if um, you want to direct people there, Paul, you're welcome to. Thank you, Miss Annie, for being on with me this evening. Beautiful co-host. Thank you, Tim. And um, thank you. Yeah, we're glad to be And thank you, Philip, for being on tonight. And and our mystery listener in, we um, just appreciate you calling in and being supportive of, of Paul this evening. So as we always say, there's enough eyes and ears out there to protect all children. There's enough adults and there's enough eyes and ears that we need to be protecting all children. So please, if you see something, please say something and let's stop. Have a good evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I'll know tomorrow, cause that's gone away.